You're heading south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is episode 39, and this is Brian McClanahan, your host, and we're talking about the week of August 22nd through August 26, 2016. Glad to have you back on the program. We had a pretty good week. One article in particular, I think, um, was is very good, and I'm going to spend some time talking about that one. Uh, so we'll do that today. Also want to emphasize again, uh, the Institute exists on your generous contributions. Please, please, please uh, make a generous contribution to the Institute. Keep this podcast going. Keep the website up. Keep our programs flowing and um, our summer schools open. So anything you can do to help us is greatly appreciated. Um, if you are in the generous mood, uh, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll gladly accept anything you can send our way. Uh, we don't have any events coming up uh, in the next uh, few months. I think our next event will be in 2017. We haven't uh, decided what that's going to be yet, but uh, probably in January or early February uh, 2017. Okay, so oh, also, uh, if, you are, uh, if you're following us, following this podcast, and you're not following us on social media, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, we do have a YouTube channel where these uh, videos do show up. Anything else that we have... Um, from our conferences that go on the YouTube channel. So uh, check us out over there. Uh, please uh, follow us everywhere you can and spread our information around the web. This is how we reach people. And of course, our job is to explore what's true and valuable in the Southern tradition. And uh, the best way to do that is to um, have our materials spread around the web. So uh, please consider doing that as well. Okay, so let's talk about our week at the, uh, at the Institute uh, on the website. We have in so many ways, there are two pieces that bookended. They're on the same theme. And then we've got a, a couple of pieces in the middle that are uh, really interesting. So let's get started. On, uh, on Monday, on the 22nd, we had a very short piece about Confederate Memorial Hall and Jack Daniels. Um, this is a big issue, and it's something, not something we really want to dwell on uh, too much. A lot of uh, press has already been... Um, uh, had about this particular issue, and other groups like the SCV and the UDC are interested in um, in exploring this particular issue. But uh, we figured we'd run something about it, uh, and it's the issue of Confederate Memorial Hall at uh, Vanderbilt University, which the term Confederate is going to be sandblasted off the front of the hall. And um, this is just laughable in so many ways. In fact, uh, Vanderbilt is going to end up paying over a million dollars to the UDC um, <laughs> to uh, to have the the name removed. And what other things could they do with a million bucks to help out students? But what these people don't even understand or don't even realize, um, this building was built. And this this piece is by Philip Lee, and he gets into this. This building was built in 1935 uh, as a residence for girls at Nashville's Peabody College. And the only people who could, uh, well, the people that lived there, if they were descendants of Confederate soldiers, they, they could live in this building for free. No room and board. Uh, and then by 1979, this particular building was added to Vanderbilt uh, University. Um, the fact is, Vanderbilt University was, was established uh, by... Cornelius Vanderbilt and his se his second wife, uh, Frank Crawford Vanderbilt, 
was the one who persuaded him to to establish the school um, with a fairly large donation. Now Vanderbilt, Cornelius Vanderbilt, of course was a was pro union during the war. But after the war was over, he did a couple of very interesting things. One, he supplied some of the money to help get Jefferson Davis out of prison. And two, he thought Vanderbilt University was going to help heal the wounds of the war and help heal the wounds of Reconstruction. This was a, a contribution to bringing the sections back together. Now, his wife was an ardent Southern sympathizer. In fact, she's from Mobile. Uh, and there were Confederate, former Confederate general at her, at her wedding. Uh, and this woman was very much a Southern partisan. So you had this union of this very wealthy industrialist, Cornelius Vanderbilt, and this Southern belle, and that led to Vanderbilt University. Uh, Vanderbilt University was pro-Southern for most of its history. It's just in the last of this uh, you know, PC cleansing that's been going on in the South now that uh, some of these things have come under attack. But people don't even realize their own past. And those that do, those that do, like uh, a Fox Sports commentator, Clay Travis, he's a Vanderbilt graduate, he apparently tweeted something about uh, how this was just PC gone mad and was so stupid. Uh, he had a contract with Jack Daniels, and they dropped him. From his contract, he was getting uh, you know three thousand bucks a, a tweet or something like that about Jack Daniels. So they drop him, and <laughs> I mean this Jack Daniels the, you know, from Tennessee, uh, the the Daniels family in Tennessee. All these people were were Confederate veterans. So I mean it's it's amazing to me, and this actually plays into the piece that I want to spend a lot of time talking about. I think the thing that's most amazing about this entire issue is how Southerners are really forgetting who they are. They're forgetting their past. They're losing all connection with it. Uh, and once you do that, you are like a ship in the ocean without, without a compass. There, there's no direction. And so by making Southerners feel guilty about their past, which is just stupid, um, they're forgetting really what that entire process was about. And I think that's the thing. When we look at what the Abbeville Institute is trying to do, and when we say we're going to explore what's true and valuable in the Southern tradition, that idea of independence, of self-determination, of decentralization, limited government, I mean, these are things the South held on to longer than anyone else in the United States. And they exemplified that in 1861. They were, they, they, we're going to do what their fathers did in 1776, and Jefferson Davis made that clear several times. So did other people. They're just following the American tradition. It's just the North had forgotten that American tradition by invading and conquering the South. And so you get this transformation of America, uh, a recreation of America, and the South was going to be left behind. It's not because uh, the South... After and this is the piece on Tuesday, we'll talk about. You know, after the war was over, Southerners wanted to be back in the Union. They wanted to be back part of it again. Uh, they wanted to be accepted, but they never were. The South always became the other that was there for criticism and uh, to be shown as the redheaded stepchild, the section that never really fit with the rest of America, unless they were trying to bow down to the North. 
and be more like the North. And this is exactly what's happening here. Uh, when you have uh, Southern institutions and, and Southerners in general saying, well, you know, we're, we're just a bunch of bad guys. Uh, what our ancestors did was just a bunch of bad things. We, were, we, we believe those people are traitors. They're, they're actually turning their back on the entire history of America. I mean, you might as well turn your back on George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and James Madison and James Monroe and all these people too. Because you can't, you can't say one group was right and the other was wrong. In fact, as I've mentioned on this podcast before, the British openly said that they believe that many Southerners during the American War for Independence were fighting for slavery. But yet that, that part of it, uh, there are people that are, of course, saying this, particularly on the left. Well, we just need to disown those people, too. S- some Americans stop short. They say, oh, no, 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 you can't do that. I mean, we can, we can criticize Robert E. Lee, and we can criticize Jefferson Davis, but we can't, we can't criticize George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. That's a completely different thing. How so? You're not being consistent in your support for self-determination. And that's the thing that people need to get out of that war more than anything else. Fighting over, you know, arguing over the causes of the war. All this. It's just, it's, it's really silly in so many ways. What needs to happen is people need to understand that regardless of causation, and we can debate causes of the war and the long-standing causes and these type of things, regardless of that, the fact that the South declared its independence was perfectly in line with the American tradition. And that's something that people need to get. So uh, people turning their back. And, of course, you know the president of Vanderbilt University is not a Southerner. He's just trying to make people happy. If you look at the board of trust uh, members of, of Vanderbilt, most of them are from the North. They don't even understand uh, why people would have, anyone would have an attachment to the Southern tradition. And it's becoming... You know, if you start saying these things, you're persona non grata. You're going to be ostracized. You're going to be criticized. All because you're saying, look, what we want is a recognition that these people who fought for the South, they're our ancestors. Uh, they were noble people. We may not like their society in which they lived, the labor system in which they had, but we're not going to turn our back on them. Uh, we're not going to say they were demons. And... There are millions of Confederate descendants out there. This, the piece by Paul Graham, you know, uh, Confederophobia, is it's like I mean, it's it's spot on. Uh, people are running from this, and they shouldn't. And they didn't for most of American history. It's only in the last say thirty years this has gotten really bad. Uh, you know, one thing uh, I've, I've been going through old Southern partisan magazines from the nineteen eighties, and even in the nineteen eighties, there were article after article. You know, flags under attack, the Southern traditions under attack. Uh, what are we going to do about it? It's, nothing's changed in 30 years. What I think we need to do about it more than anything else is go on the offensive. And it's not defending, not always playing defense. The flag is this, the, uh, the Southern. It's, it's explaining what the Southern tradition is and what we can get out of it. How important the South really was to the Union itself and to the American tradition. There wouldn't be American conservatism without the South. You wouldn't have it. Uh, there really wouldn't be this American tradition of independence and decentralization without the South. Southern culture wouldn't be what it is without the South. Or I should say, excuse me, American culture wouldn't be what it is without the South. The South is America. So what we're trying to do is go on the offensive and let people 
and remind people more than anything else. Let them be proud of who they are. Remember who we are. That's the important thing. And so uh, when you look at what's happening, this stuff is going to continue to happen. Uh, we can play defense all day long and try to say, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. Or we can try to change minds and say, no, what people should be really proud of the South. Uh, if all the symbols were gone, and maybe in 20 years they will be, if all the symbols are gone, the Southern tradition would still be there. It would still be there. Uh, this idea of decentralization would still be there. Maybe it's uh, suppressed. Maybe it's uh, not as popular as it once was. But I think, and what we're seeing now, that decentralization, which, again, the South carried out more than anyone else, is becoming the idea of the 21st century. That's why we had our conference on nullification. It is becoming the thing that people want. On the left, too. And that's the important part of this. you got to persuade people on both sides that decentralization is important. And it really is the American tradition. So uh, the last piece of the week kind of gets into that. Um, so I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. But let's talk about Tuesday's piece, Reflections of a Ghost, an Agrarian View After 50 Years. This is written by uh, Andrew Nelson Lytle. And uh, it was a speech he gave in 1980 on the 50th anniversary of I'll Take My Stand. This is such a good piece. Uh, what he does in this particular piece is explain, after 50 years, where he thinks agrarianism is still relevant. And here we are now, again, almost 40 years after this. You know, in four years will be 40 years after this particular piece was written. And is agrarianism still relevant today? And the amazing thing about this piece is you see a cataclysmic shift in America between 1930 and 1980. And some of the things he talks about in this piece and some of the things he was experiencing in the 1920s, you'll never find that again. He talks about uh, you know, traveling uh, by car uh, and how long it took to go places. But not only that, when they, would, they wouldn't stay at hotels. They'd just pitch a tent on the side of the road. They'd go into a farmer's field, get his collards and cook them up, and that's what they would eat. They would go into town, maybe get a bath here, go into town and meet with friends. But there, it was a very you know, stress-free environment. You just lived in the country. Nobody cared if you pitched a tent on the side of the road and uh, went on with your business because nobody was really around. He talks about being in Mississippi and going to a, a courthouse there. He's on his way to Tupelo. And he would ask directions. And all the people there at this, at this courthouse still rode up on a horse. This is... This is the 1920s. They still were traveling by horse. And they, when he asked them where to go, one guy said, go, go, go to the place where the, where the widow lives and take a left. Didn't say how far down it was, but he knew where he was because that widow didn't have any cut wood in her front yard. And he says the amazing thing about all of this, when they were writing this in 1930, people didn't realize yet that the world in which they lived was fast disappearing and it was going to be gone. They didn't, they didn't defend it because they never thought it would disappear. And I think that's interesting. They weren't concerned about the loss of the way of life that they had because they never thought it would go away because it had been there for generations. Why would this go away? When you think about the Southern tradition and you look at people who are now shocked at what's happened. They never thought it would go away. They never thought it needed defending or explaining or promotion. 
because there's no way this would disappear. And I think that's what you're seeing now with Confederate Memorial Hall and the loss of Southern symbols. No one thought these things would ever disappear. Why would they? People were proud of who they were. People were proud of being from the South. They were proud of being a distinctively Southern people. So why is it that that would go away? Well, it has. And he talks about how that happened in this particular piece. And they talked about that in I'll Take My Stand. If you've never read I'll Take My Stand, what they're saying is, look, this can go away, and it can go away quickly if we don't try to hang on to the Southern tradition. And the funny thing is, we have a piece on Vanderbilt on Monday. Of course, all the agrarians were around Vanderbilt. And how that was a center for the study of the South and what the Southern tradition meant in literature and history for, for a long period of time. That and at Swanee, University of the South, which has now di- tried to distance itself from that too. But that's what it was. And he talks about why the agrarian tradition went away. He says, The New South propaganda of progress everywhere said as much, and most of the media of news and public information took it for granted. Farming was looked down upon. Tired of poverty and honest work, the young began to desert the land and go to town. And in town, the ambitious youth took the train to New York City, as did many young men from the West. The Chancellor of Vanderbilt University announced at a crucial moment of the agrarian fight that he wanted to graduate bankers, not writers or farmers. And that's true. Southerners ditched the South. Now, when I was in graduate school, I took a course on the New South. And the professor, he assigned this particular book, and he said it's too romantic. Uh, the problem with the agrarians is they didn't know what they were talking about. They weren't farmers. They had no idea. They didn't, people didn't want to live off the land and be in this hard work, and I think that's true. They didn't want to have the small farm, but when you lose that, when you lose the attachment to the land in any way, you're losing that tradition. And he talks about how because the North won the war, they wrote the history. And uh, they wrote that the South was wrong. And the, the thing about it is that, you know, Southerners wanted to be part, as he points out, Southerners wanted to be part of the Union. And they were fine in some ways with critique of the South because they just wanted to get along after World War I. World War I really was a crucial period in American history because it brought the sections back together in a way that no other thing could. The Spanish-American War started the process in 1898, but World War I, and there was images of the Confederate soldiers shaking hands with the doughboy. This was supposed to bring the sections back together, and Southerners thought we're part of it now. But what they didn't realize is they never were. The United States needed the South. They needed Southern men. They needed what the South brought to the Union. And in some ways, one of the misunderstood parts about the World War I period is the Wilson administration and the domestic side of it, not the stuff that was going on during the war, which was just blatantly unconstitutional, but the stuff that happened when he first became president. And the things I'm talking about are like the Underwood uh, Tariff, uh, the Glass-Steagall Act, uh, the Clayton Antitrust Act, 
If you look at the people that wrote those bills, they're all from the South. Henry de Lamar Clayton's from Eufaula, Alabama. Uh, we already talked about Oscar Underwood, uh, Carter Glass, Henry Stegall from the South. Uh, and so what they were doing, and I think it's very clear, they were all very much interested in uh, limited government. But what they were doing is using this mechanism that was given to them by the North. Remember, the North expands power of the general government in the 1860s forward. And they're doing it for their own benefit, for the industrial society that they wanted, the commercial industrial society. So what the South did is use that same mechanism to get back at them. They're going to regulate banking. They're going to regulate uh, the economy. What they're going to do is regulate northern industrialists, is what they were trying to do. So it's an, it's an agrarian attack in so many ways through the same mechanisms that they were given against the industrial north. And Lytle talks about, you know, he says, it was not long before some of us, at least, suffered a disillusionment. It was not so clear that we were back in the Union. One, he points out, uh, one of the reasons why is because of the Scopes trial. Southerners were poked fun at. Look out, look at these backward Southerners defending creation. They're not in, t- they're not in tune with the times, right? This is, this is so silly. Evolution is the thing we should be teaching, you know, creation. That's just a bu- for a bunch of hayseeds that don't know what they're talking about. And he says that, you know, the thing is, after the economic exploitation of the South, this religious attack on the South, the Southern spirit seemed to have a double purpose, to denigrate us before the country and the world, make us laughed at as backward and ignorant. But he said the real point of all of this was to accept a secular instead of a divine order of the universe. And the land keeps you in touch with the divine order of the universe. You're part of it. You're part of the rhythm of the divine. Once you get into the secular, it's completely different. And so as these men started to realize that, they started to study Southern history, and all of these writers, literary people, they weren't historians, but they started studying Southern history, Lytle among them. As all these agrarians started to do this, they started writing biographies of Stonewall Jackson and Jefferson Davis and uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest and uh, Robert Penn Warren worked on a biography of John Brown, which was critical. So this is what they started to do, to start looking at their own life and their own history. And when you read those histories, they're positive affirmations of who these people were. He says the agrarian writings simply or merely displayed their common cultural inheritance, which was Christian and European. He says, he quotes from, I'll take my stand, opposed to the industrial society is the agrarian, which does not stand in particular need of definition. An agrarian society is hardly one that has no use at all for industries, for professional vocations, for scholars and artists, and for the life of cities. Technically, perhaps, an agrarian society is one in which agriculture is a leading vocation, whether for wealth, for pleasure, or for prestige, a form of labor that is pursued with, the intelli- with intelligence and leisure, and that becomes the goal to which the other forms approach as well as they may. So he's not saying you get rid of all these other things. But the farmer is the ideal person in that society. This is what Jefferson said. 
It wasn't that they were against these other things, but we should still hold on to the land. He says, Surely then it must be taken that a poet, a farmer, a banker, a historian, a schoolteacher must live in a certain place and time, and so exhibit the kind of belief and behavior defined by the manners and mores of that time and place. It was not necessary to be a farmer to be agrarian. It was merely the basic occupation of a commodity-producing society. And there's a very good line here. He says, The liberal cartoons attacking showed us with our heads under a mule's tail, or a lone privy, with a half-moon cut over the door and the door closed. It left to the imagination what was behind the door. Alan Tate remarked that he referred an indoor commode so long as he didn't have to kneel down and worship it before using it. And that's what he's saying these northerners were doing. They're going to worship the toilet. And he brings up the fact that uh, John Taylor of Caroline was the Jeffersonian vision of America. And Eritur, which was such a, it's such a great book. If you've never read Eritur, there's several good lines in it. And um, one of them is that if, you know, if, if government is good and agriculture bad, then you have liberty and poverty. If agriculture is good and government bad, we may have wealth and slavery. Um, so I mean, Taylor was spot on back in the late 18th century, early 19th century, about what would happen if you fused together finance and industry and government. And he does address some of his, uh, some of his critics in this particular piece. Um, he says, the misunderstanding, even among the most sympathetic critics like Louis Rubin, has assumed that a commodity-producing society such as the South and West had not a chance of sustaining itself before the successive triumphs of the financial corporate role of money. And this kind of money is always international. They were vague about this corporate rule, but they accepted as absolute the ex post facto assumption of the relative poverty of the southern farm and its ultimate doom. He says the confusion lies just here. The communities composed of families with real property and private businesses still existed. The fight was on, but the outcome was uncertain. The depression was a heavy blow. Cotton cost seven cents a pound to grow, and it brought on what is essentially the world market five cents. The only answer Roosevelt's government could give was plow under a fourth of your labor, cotton, corn, hogs, and cattle. This is the most immoral fiat ever handed down from afar. Destroy your handicrafts and life for an abstract stock market purpose. Where was the Joseph to talk of lean and fat years, store away instead of destroy? He concludes by saying, I've often asked myself, what was it, why was it that so few people listened to us, although most were sympathetic? The kind of life they knew was at stake. I think the reason of their seeming indifference is this. Nobody could imagine the world they were born in, had lived in, and were still living in could disappear. Well, it has. And he says, as my final word, I think we should have found a larger word than agrarian. For it was this whole country's Christian inheritance that was threatened, and still is. I think that's so important. The Southern tradition is not just about the South. It's about the Christian tradition, or the American tradition, or Western civilization in so many ways. That was being threatened. That's what we're saying. Remember who you are. And that's all that Lytle is saying here. Remember who you are.
all of that is gone. It doesn't mean you can't have some of it back, pieces of it, and you don't have to be a farmer to be an agrarian. It's a mindset. It's accepting the divine in your life. And that's so important for the Southern tradition, which America needs a heavy dose of. When you look around the things that are happening, the Southern tradition tradition could help, but people have to know it in order to use it. And I, I tell people all the time, it's not simple. It's not, it's not sufficient enough to react. You have to think. You have to think on a daily basis in order so you don't have to react. And so uh, instead of just reacting all the time, think about what you're doing. On Wednesday, we ran a piece by Clyde Wilson, Film Log, Three for the Resistance. And this is one thing that Clyde does very well, is talk about film. He, he's got a number of pieces on the website about Confederate uh, history through film. This one's about World War II, and uh, a couple, uh, three films that he mentions that uh, were pretty good about that. And he, he, he does it from the perspective of resisting Germany. And he says, you know, as, as, if someone from an occupied place, an occupied people, these things find favor. You know, how could these peoples, other peoples, resist Germans during the war. And uh, so he talks about the Dutch resistance and uh, Norwegian resistance, uh, the uh, uh, the Finnish resistance to the Russians, to the Soviets, who were also just as bad. So these peoples that were trying to hang on to their own culture and their own history, resisting the totalitarian governments around them, whether it was Germany or Russia, Uh, and so he, he offers a, a three films that you might want to watch that gets into that. Uh, Thursday, we ran a piece entitled uh, South of New York with Charlie and Me, and this is by Paul Yarbrough. He's a very good writer, and he talks about how, you know, people are, and this is kind of changing directions a little bit, but how people are very upset with national politics. And um, how it really doesn't matter who wins, whether it's Trump or Hillary. Now, of course, people are going to have their, their personal per, you know, favorite in those two and who they think would be better for the direction of America, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter who wins because both are going to be in favor of big central government. Both are going to be in favor of... Um, unconstitutional government, and neither one really has the interests of the South at heart. Um, one of the things that we have to look at in this entire process, when we think about the Southern tradition, is being independent, self-reliance, community, your community family first, then your community, then your state. In so many ways, it shouldn't really matter who, who's president, because if we had a American perspective on government, if federalism really was what it's supposed to be, then it wouldn't really matter who's president because the federal government would be so limited and so insignificant that the most important elections would be in your local community and at your state level. And that's the, that's the direction we need to get people thinking. Uh, and the reason people are so angry in America is because they, they don't believe they're represented, and they're not. We've mentioned this several times on this podcast. Um, you're not represented in Washington, D.C. Top-down, one-size-fits-all policies don't work. They don't work for people on the left or the right. They just don't work. And not with 320 million people in a, in a 
territory that stretches from New York to California. It just can't work. It's too big. And so it shouldn't really matter. I mean, Southerners have become, you know, well, the Republicans are there to save us. And Yarbrough says, well, have they really ever saved the South? No, they never have. And so we're putting too much faith in the Republican Party or in politics when what we should really be doing is focusing on the local. You've got to restart civilization somehow. You've got to adopt that idea of, of agrarianism. And as, as Lytle says, maybe that's not the right word. Maybe it's just Christianity. We're saving the South. We're saving the Southern tradition, which is based on Western civilization. That's what we should be doing. And it doesn't matter who's in the Oval Office. It won't. The South has never had, I'm sorry, the Republican Party has never had the South in its best interests. But we're told it does. The only thing you get is more and more focus on the center and less and less on real Southern values and institutions or decentralization. And I mean, you could say the same thing about the North as well. And I ask this sometimes of liberals, what is the Democratic Party? I mean, if you're, if you're a dyed-in-the-wall Bernie Sanders person, is the central government going to give you what you want? No, but I think that Massachusetts could or Vermont. You can go live there, California. Why do you want the rest of everyone to be like that? Just accept what you want. And that's an important thing to get out of this. You've got to stop focusing on, on quote-unquote, national politics. Start focusing on the local and the family and the community. If you can do that, you're going to change the world. The last piece uh, by Lunell McAllister from Monument to Cenotaph. And this is talking about, again, the importance of these memorials. They're not just monuments. They're memorials. Confederate Memorial Hall is a memorial. They're not monuments. They're memorials. And they represent... As she says, the term cenotaph is a term for a symbolic tomb for dead buried elsewhere, especially veterans. And she brings up the fact that, you know, every, every year they have uh, the queen go and put a wreath at a cenotaph there in, in England. Uh, this is uh, in, Light, in London, the Whitehall Cenotaph, because it's about the soldiers who have died elsewhere. And that's essentially what these Confederate memorials are. She says, our monuments, like the Alamo and Whitehall Cenotaph, are more than just a tribute to sacrifice. They represent a gravestone in lieu of marked graves. Wherever you are, whatever monument you're talking about, it could be the Vietnam Memorial. And people have vandalized that. And we've run a piece, you know, when the Confederate monuments are only the beginning. People are not happy about American history before about 1975. So anything before that is bad. World War II, these people were bad. Korean War, these people were bad. Vietnam War, these people were bad. There's people that can't see the connection, but it's there. We've run a piece about that before, but there's a connection. People are saying it's not just the South is bad. That's just the beginning. That's the low-hanging fruit. Once you pick that fruit, what fruit are you going after next? Well, it's pretty simple. You're going after uh, World War I memorials. You're going after World War II memorials. Or Vietnam Memorial, the Korean War memorials. That's what, or you're going after the Washington Monument or the Jefferson Memorial. Those are the things that come next. 
So we have to change perspective. And she mentions um, that the words, lest we forget, are obvious to those who understand the true history of the war, but others contrive different meanings to these words. This represents a teaching opportunity. Why would so many non-slave owners, 80% of Southerners and non-owned slaves, leave their families and enlist as common soldiers, primarily fought on Southern soil? Could it possibly be something more than to keep their black brothers and sisters enslaved? She says, some states have passed legislation to protect American veterans' monuments. Perhaps others will do the same. But in the meantime, let's provide the answer to the question mark and not let others define our historical works. The war was a continuation of the founders' concept of America. Local control, not federal control. The argument continues today just as President Jefferson Davis predicted it would in medical marijuana, unisex bathrooms, and so on and so on. And that's true. These, these battles are being fought over federalism, which was at stake in 1861. So we start with the idea of these memorials and what they mean and Southerners remembering who they are and how important the Southern tradition is. And we end with that too. And we talk about Lytle saying, look, people, they wanted to be part of the Union after World War I, but they didn't realize they were being attacked. As Yarbrough said, you know, Southerners don't realize, I guess, Jeff Foxworthy is a comedian. Southerners are being attacked because they are needed. They are the example to keep people thinking, well, if we don't, if we do what the South, if we, if we do this, we're going to be just like the South, and we don't want, I mean, look at the uh, recent uh, hit piece on, on uh, Donald Trump. It, the clear indication is that Southerners are, are what, what Trump is tapping into is the South. And of course, uh, that's not the South. So uh, the South is always a scapegoat because it's an opportunity for people to raise money or to uh, attack traditional America. And I think that's the important thing we should get out of this. So be proud of who you are. Uh, Be proud of that. Uh, But remember who you are. And you have to do that through education. You have to remember who you are. You have to remember what the Southern tradition is and the South is America. The time is is here to stop playing defense and start playing offense. And by playing offense, it's explaining what the Southern tradition can still offer to America today. And if we can do that continually and constantly, uh, you will change the way people think. And it could take 100 years. It could take 200 years. All the symbols could be gone. The monuments could be gone. Flags could be gone, whatever it is. But even if all that's gone, you know, in 1861, the South didn't have any symbols. It had no, had no monuments, but it had the spirit of the founding generation within it. It had a culture and a tradition that was worth hanging on to. As long as that's there, everything can go away, but you can still have that belief and the good things of the Southern tradition. And that would be uh, Christianity, Western civilization, decentralization, federalism, these things that we talk about constantly. Those things that can provide something to America now, manners. My gosh, we've lost manners. Those things we can provide to America now that could benefit America. Until next time, good day.